It's my pleasure to welcome you to Wycliffe College this evening. My name is John Bowen, and one of my jobs at the college is to oversee a department called Wycliffe Serves! Exclamation mark. And of course, since you can't see the words, I have to say exclamation mark every time. It's the department that coordinates and oversees all the ministries of the college by which we serve the church and the community outside the walls. And there are about 10 of those programs uh, of those ministries. People want, when we started this, people wanted to call it the Institute for this, that, and the other. And I said, that sounds so boring and so static. Let's have something active. Let's have a name that says what it does. And hence, Wycliffe serves! Exclamation mark. You knew there was an exclamation mark coming. So this particular event is one of an ongoing series of what we call society and culture lectures, where we look at a number of issues that are current in our society and come at it with a Christian lens to see how we can uh, understand and uh, serve God better in, in our context. Some of you, my guess is, have been to society and culture lectures before. Uh, you will enjoy tonight, I'm telling you that now, it's not an order, it's a promise. Uh, but you might also might like to make uh, a note of the next of these events, which will be January the 29th. Same place, same channel. We'll have two speakers, Professor Dennis Alexander uh, from Cambridge and Professor Larry Moran from this culture, uh, this, this university. Oh, getting lost. Who will, I'm told I mustn't say the word debate, they will dialogue about issues of faith and science. Uh, Dr. Alexander is a Christian, Dr. Moran is an atheist, and that's going to be a lively evening. Anyway, this is tonight. This is not January the 29th. I'm going to introduce the uh, presenter for the evening. Her name is Karen Stiller. She's a good friend. In the public world, she's best known as the editor of uh, Faith Today magazine, but she's also a friend of Wycliffe College and on the board here and she will introduce our speaker for the evening. So Karen, come now and uh, do that for us. Thank you. When I was little, I was nothing. At least that is what everyone told me. I was not Jewish like my Russian-Austrian mother. I was not Catholic like my Italian immigrant father. I was not Protestant like the Presbyterians who gathered at the big brick church bl blocks away in Forest Hill. When I was growing up, it was not popular to answer nothing when asked what religion you were. Certainly, no one ever said they were spiritual but not religious. And so begins Belief Without Borders inside the minds of the spiritual but not religious by Linda Mercadante, our speaker this evening. Her latest book examines the beliefs, convictions, the thinking, and the spiritual lives of the rapidly growing group we call the spiritual but not religious. Dr. Reverend Dr. Linda Mercadante was herself once a spiritual but not religious person, which I think gives hope to all parents of spiritual but not religious people everywhere. But through an intensive spiritual journey, has become a seminary professor, theologian, and ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. Linda received her PhD from Princeton and has been serving as a professor of theology at the Methodist Theological School in Ohio for more than 25 years. She's published five books, nearly 100 articles, and speaks internationally on a variety of topics. 
We're very happy to have her with us this evening to help us understand what it means to be spiritual but not religious and what that means for the Canadian church. I loved Linda's book. I read it with fascination and I found myself sharing things I was learning with my husband who is a minister, with my women's Bible study group, with my friends and with my work colleagues. This book contains relevant and fascinating insights wherever you sit on the SBNR spectrum. So here's what the evening will look like. Um, Linda, we're going to welcome her to the stage. After she shared some of her research and insights, I will join her again here, and I will ask her some of my questions, and then we'll open it up, and hopefully you'll be filled with questions as well, and we've, we're going to take full advantage of Linda's wisdom this evening. After that's all over, uh, please join us for some light refreshments, and there is a book table at the back of the room uh, with two of Linda's books, including, of course, Belief Without Borders. So, Linda, please. Thank you very much, Karen, for that, and John, for those, those nice introductions. I really appreciate that. And I want to say, first of all, how happy I am to be back in Canada. I tried to stay in Canada when I was a student at Regent College, but could not find any way to stay here. But I really love Canada, and it's, it's a joy to be back here. I did go to Regent College, actually, for my master's degree before going to Princeton for the PhD. But I'm really not here to talk about that today. I'm here to talk about the spiritual but not religious, which is, as you probably know, a growing movement. So today we'll look at uh, the movement. Uh, I want to tell you why I'm interested in it. I want to help you understand it. And then we'll have time to talk further about that. So first of all, I have some street creds here. I do. So let, as Karen started to explain, um, why do I care? Why do I care about this? Because I was a spiritual but not religious person. And uh, this is it more fully developed in this in my memoir, Bloomfield Avenue, A Jewish Catholic Jersey Girl Spiritual Journey. And uh, that's something that we have available. And then I'll tell you more about my regular book in a minute. But I care because when I was a, uh, a spiritual but not religious person, and I will go into that in a minute, I had very serious theological questions. And I, had, uh, I was on a valid spiritual journey, but was not completely aware of that. And so similarly to me, similar to me, I find that happening all over our culture, and it's actually very exciting. And, and how do I know about it? Well, I know about it because I lived it, but then on top of that, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people that say they're spiritual but not religious, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but I, met, I uh, spoke to people in the US, in Canada, a little bit in Mexico, Scotland, as many places as I could manage to afford to go. So those are my street creds, besides my academic accomplishments. So I care, like I said, like Karen said, because at one time, um, well, I was raised by a, an Italian Catholic immigrant father and a second generation Jewish, Austrian, Russian mo mother. And my parents got married during World War II and as you may know then, being in a, what they called then a mixed marriage, which to us sounds like, wow, is that a problem? Well, it was a problem then. And people made them feel ashamed of who they were and of who they loved, which of course sounds very sad to us today. But they didn't know, uh, they didn't know how to take that. They, they took it seriously. And so what they did was they decided that any religion 
or any God that disapproved of their love was not good enough for them. So they put their religions on a back shelf as though they were unwanted wedding guests. And when they had children, I was the oldest and then my brother came along, they decided that they would not raise us in any religion. Now they didn't say like some people say today, they let them decide for themselves. I don't think they thought that far into the future, but, they, but our house, our home was like uh, in the Wild West of the U.S., you have to put, you'd have to put your guns at the door before you went into the church. At our house, our home, you had to put your religion at the door. We lived in a no-religion zone. Religion was not allowed. So I uh, set, up, set out on, um, without knowing it, a spiritual journey, because all children are naturally spiritual. And uh, um, around me were many uh, Italian families, a lot of immigrants, and they were, of course, at that time, Catholic. And so I, I realized that that was where my cousins and my little friends were, uh, they were. They knew who they were. They knew what was right and wrong. They knew who to believe in, and I had none of that. And so I, little by little, decided that's what I wanted to do too. And as I said at lunch today, um, the, the, turning, the, the turning point was when one of my aunts, my Italian aunts, got me alone and saw me like furtively looking at my cousin's missalette, which I thought was fabulous. Like she had this little book and it told her what was going on in the mass and it told her, um, it had pictures of angels on it. And it was just, I was very drawn to it. And so my aunt kind of sidled up to me and she said, well, you know, Linda, Jesus was Jewish and he became a Catholic which maybe didn't sound like good, doesn't sound like good theology to you, but in a way it really was. And that kind of opened the door, and I decided to become a Roman Catholic. That held until college, when through a different, a whole set of circumstances, I decided this wasn't for me, and so I became, at that point, non-religious. Not even spiritual, but not religious. And I uh, proceeded along that road, you know, in your 20s, you know, you got other uh, things to take care of, right? You're looking for what, what are you going to do for a living? What about who are you going to be with? All that. So I eventually um, found my way. This is all in the book. But anyway, I became a flight attendant. I know, hard to believe. I was going to title my book from flight attendant to theologian, but the publisher wouldn't let me. So um, in that journey, I eventually stopped being a flight attendant, took a job at a Catholic newspaper even though I was non-religious, and ended up having a revelation that this was all a hoax, and decided that, there, that uh, there was no God and religion was crazy. So I became an atheist. The story goes on, and I don't have time to give you all the details, but I eventually found my way to Switzerland. I quit all my various jobs. I found my way to Switzerland. I, I was hitchhiking around, and guess where I happened upon? I happened upon Labrie, Francis Schaeffer, all that. And um, although I didn't want them to know that I was considering it seriously because we were very different, I eventually had a conversion experience there. Next went to Regent College, the Graduate Theological Union, Princeton, and became what I am now. But it was a long road. And in, through that road, I would appear to you, or to them, to sh the Schaefers for sure, as hostile, angry. I was very, definitely very feminist, so I was looking for sexism everywhere, which of course you can find. And uh, basically, I was not, you know, the, <laughs> your likely prospect. I was not your archetypal seeker. But somehow, I really was. I just didn't know it. And they, and they weren't sure either, because I was always fighting with them. But eventually, I read the Bible and I said, 
this is true, uh-oh, and um, you know, the rest is in my book. So the reason I care is because I was there. And it's very important to me that we take seriously people that say they're spiritual but not religious, that we don't stereotype them, that we don't misjudge them, that we don't make fun of them. It's very important that we take them seriously. So I had the uh, good fortune of finding a job. I found a job in a mainstream U.S. Protestant seminary. And as soon as I started working there, I started hearing about the decline in numbers, go, uh, numbers for organized religion, the you know, decline in membership, decline in everything. And I was like, thank you, you invited me on as you're going down on the lifeboat. So I felt like I was on the Titanic, and, and somebody, some guy going down on the lifeboat threw me his officer's hat and said, bye, dearie, have a good time. And I, there I am on the Titanic, not knowing I just joined an enterprise that was going down. That's how I felt. Pretty upsetting. Um, but as a scholar, I have the advantage of getting a grant and doing research on something that's bothering me, so that's what I did. And I was awarded the Henry Luce Three Fellowship in Theology for this project called Unfettered, Be Untethered, Unfettered Belief, Untethered Practice, Thinking Theologically About Spiritual But Not Religious. Because I was hearing theology. In all, all my many, many friends that were spiritual but not religious, I was hearing qu big questions. I was hearing theological questions, and nobody was taking them seriously. So here's what I was studying. I was studying an ethos that rejects or minimizes organized religion. These will not surprise you. That insists all religion are the same or equally limited. That minimizes belief or practices hybridity. You know what hybridity is? It's like taking some from here and some from there. That is highly individualistic and often non-theistic. In other words, not about God. And experiments with monism, pantheism, paganism, dualism. So this now is, most people say, of course, I recognize that. But when I put the grant in, nobody had been studying it, and certainly not theologically, not, by, not about belief. So that is the genesis of this book, in case you're interested. What the book really does is give you first-person narrative, gives you stories, and it gives you their words themselves, because no, I felt nobody was letting them speak for themselves. We had, of course, quantitative analysis, which is surveys. We had that. And it's, so it documented the rise, but we never heard their voices, because a survey can't do that. A, a quantitative survey can't do that. So I decided, let them speak for themselves. And I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of spiritual but not religious people, and that's how this book came about. So it's, it's been getting very good reviews. I've been on television, radio, and all sorts of places. And uh, it's kind of surprising to me because you might not know this, but theologians are totally not used to being popular. We're usually really unpopular. People usually say, you know, let's say you go to a party. Hi, what do you do? I'm a theologian. Okay. What do you do? I teach at a seminary. Well, isn't everybody a theologian? No, it's an actual field. It's a subject matter. Um, okay, thank you. I think I need a drink. <laughs> that was it. That usually ended the conversation immediately. But suddenly... Here I was being interviewed and on TV and everything, and it was like, I think I hit a nerve. Something that I did here really hit a cultural nerve, which of course made me very happy, uh, although not for the reasons that you might think, because I'm not happy about the declines. Um, uh, this journal, Spirituality and Practice, awarded my, my book as the best of the best 
among the best of the best th that year that it came out last year. And um, I got some, I'm getting some wonderful reviews. I'm just showing you this to s just to tell you that s this is a very important topic, and it seems to be recognized all over the place, which is wonderful, of course, for a scholar, but uh, also very surprising, because I, no one thought anybody cared about belief. No one thought anybody cared about theology, and it turns out they really do. So I have to back up now and tell you about the hard facts, because they are real and they are hard. If, if you're a religious person, these facts hit you hard. So many surveys, the Pew Forum, uh, American Religious Index Survey, also, there's many, many, many surveys. Here's what they document. They document a rapid decline in religious involvement, religious affiliation, religious loyalty, confidence in religion, religious beliefs, religious upbringing. It's very clear-cut. These are all going down. They're going down precipitously, not just a little bit at a time, but rapidly and dramatically. So these declines are in both the U.S. and Canada. It's not just in one or the other. They cut across all generations. A lot of people think, well, it's those crazy baby boomers. Okay, I am one. I, I accept responsibility. But nevertheless, it's really not just us. That it's especially prevalent, in fact, in young adults, especially millennials. And it's the fastest growing religious group. Well, religious group in quotes. These things you can't de deny. They're there. They're, they're facts. They're in all the studies. In fact, I think Pew just came out with the second part of their religious landscape survey just maybe on November 3rd, I think. It just came out. And they, and uh, my husband says, and it's even worse than the part one. So it, it's, it's real. This is real. We have to take it seriously. So in Canada, your religious landscape is changing dramatically. Look at this. Look at this sharp decline. And this is just, this is in a few different periods here. 19, oops, sorry. Sorry. Okay, see that 1971 to 2011? That's this, the range. You can see that, I mean, just looking at the line, even if you didn't look at the percentages, look at that line. It's a sharp line. Protestants are very dramatic. Catholics are pretty dramatic, too. Other religions in Canada are rising, but the religious unaffiliated is rising faster. Look at the, the steep, steep rise, faster than anything else. You may say, well, we have a lot of minorities here, and uh, they're, you know, they're going to take over our country. I don't know if you would really say this, but you, know, you might think that. Well, there's a rise. It's, it's, it's good. It's, I mean, it's a decent rise, but nothing like the rise in spiritual but not religious. So in some ways, the U.S. and Canada are very similar in, in this, that, the, that both of us are seeing a dramatic increase. In the U.S., this chart says 70, 20%, but the latest statistics say 25%, and that makes me believe that the latest statistic for Canada is higher than 24%. This is people that are unaffiliated with any religion. People that are happy to say, when you send them a survey, you call them up on the phone, they get a, a survey in the, on the computer or in the mail, and you say, what religion are you? And they can check Protestant or Presbyterian or United Church of Canada or Catholic or whatever the choices are, and, and, or none of the above, and they check none of the above also known as nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Now, the U.S. and Canada is also somewhat different, and this is probably, this is very significant, actually. Look at this um, difference here. 
in the U.S., we, we have immigrants, you have immigrants, but our immigrants tend to drop, fall away from their heritage and their religions much faster than yours. And you're, the immigrants you receive, and we, I think we get some similar culture, uh, immigrants from similar cultures. Anyway, it's, for some reason in Canada, the, the immigrants seem to maintain their religious traditions a little bit more than in the U.S., where they become part of this uh, homogeneous spiritual but not religious pot very quickly. So that is different, and that is going to affect a lot of things here. But what's not different is that you have a dramatic increase in spiritual but not religious, and so does the U.S. So a lot of people feel like this. That's just how they feel. Bye. Happy. You know, not happy. Happy. I mean, a lot of, I don't know how many people here are ordained or in ministry. Who's in ministry here? Okay, and who, who actually is involved in a church here? Okay, so, you know, that's a significant bunch of people. Well, when you look at the, you know, it's, it's a little scary. What's going on? So why? Why is this happening? That's what everybody wants to know. And I don't know what your assumptions are, but a lot of the people I work with, they, they have what... We used to call in the Catholic Church the mea culpa. Mea culpa. Anyone used to be a Catholic mea culpa? Mea culpa means it's all my fault, all right? We'd say mea culpa, mea culpa, and I forget what the third. Mea maxima culpa, thank you, from my Cuban husband. <clears throat> so that means it's really my fault, okay? So that's what we assume. Well, uh, you know, we didn't give them good community. We didn't welcome them. We weren't nice to them. We gave them simplistic formulas. Uh, we, we had the Inquisition, we had slavery, sure, I mean, in the U.S. So, sure, that's why. Well, actually, is that why? Is it that old-time religion that's really making them leave? A lot, of people, a lot of people in Christianity are good with guilt. They really are good with guilt. And so we just assume, what do we do wrong? What do we do to offend them? But that's not what studies show, and it's not what my research shows. So that's a big surprise. There's a lot of factors at work. I don't have time to go into every single factor, but I'm definitely going to give you some pointers on those factors. What are they? There's demographic changes, uh, changes in you know more mobility, different composition, people coming from different backgrounds. There's changes in our social landscape. People are, are um, not living where they grew up. They are moving away from their parents. They don't have family nearby. They have less, there's less friendships now, believe it or not. Um, changes in our intellectual landscape, that's very important, and I wish I had a lot of time to unpack that, because that's probably the most important thing, is changes in our intellectual landscape, what we believe. Changes in believability. Most people think that you can't believe in some of the things that religion promotes. They just think that's crazy, it's not believable, I just can't do it. And that's widespread. And then what I think is probably the most important, most interesting, is changes in morality. Now, to people that are involved in religion, a lot of them think it's, it's immorality. But it's really not immorality, it's just a different morality, which I'm going to go into in, in briefly soon. Here, so changes in morality. This is very, I appreciate that this is all very, very quick. My book ha lays everything out in a lot more detail. So this is kind of an overview, and is what I'm giving you. So um, you could consult the book if you want to get more detail. But changes in morality. We used to live, has any, anybody here watch Game of Thrones on TV? You know about that, the medieval period? Okay, that was an honor-shame culture. Honor was what you defended, and shame was what you really wanted to avoid, because shame meant 
you know, you, it's, you're, you're completely dishonored in society, you have no respect anymore. <clears throat> that culture prevailed during the feudal period, after the decline of the Roman Empire, during the feudal period, the honor-shame culture was very, very active. But that didn't last, because Christianity started to make its way uh, known among different tribes and different peoples, and so we ended up with the rise of Christendom with a, a culture of higher purposes. Higher purposes meaning, are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to go to hell? Does God love you? Does God reject you? That's the culture we're coming off of. And the worst thing that could happen to you in that culture is that you would worry and have guilt that maybe God's not accepting you and maybe you're not going to go to the right place when you die. So that was the entire focus. That morality is dwindling down. But a lot of people in the church feel that that is the only morality. I'm not saying it is or it isn't one way or the other, but I do want to describe that the, there, there's a new morality, and that is a self-fulfillment culture. So it's a morality of finding the, as much personal fulfillment in life as you can. Now, sometimes people in the church say, oh, that's really narcissistic. Well, maybe, maybe not. Some people say it's hedonistic. There's no standards. No, actually, there's a lot of standards that go with it. There's a lot of self-discipline, actually, with that morality. But it is a morality. And the worst thing that can happen to you with that morality is that you regret. You regret that you didn't live your life to the fullest. Look at any ads on TV. Look at movies about the bucket list. Look at all that, and you'll see that that new morality is, that, is, is infusing the entire culture. Even Christians, even people in the church have that morality without realizing it. They may care where they go when they die, but they want to know now, am I living, am I, have I found the right vocation? Am I living with integrity? Am I doing the best that I can possibly do with myself and my gifts? That is a morality of self-fulfillment. That is the biggest, one of the biggest changes that's going on now that is causing this change in, in uh, spirituality. But a significant percent of nuns, those who check no religion, actually say they're spiritual but not religious. Uh, uh, maybe some, uh, from a quarter to a half of N-O-N-E-S nuns are SBNR. So I decided to listen to them because, as I said, I didn't think anybody was really giving them their voice, like, uh, like wanting to write about what they thought and what they believed, especially what they believed. So I uh, conducted over a five-year period, a long research project. And this research project, like I said, it's five years. There was 100 recorded interviews, but I had hundreds of informal conversations and focus groups. Uh, I, I worked hard to get geographic diversity. I, I can't say I covered the, you know, both uh, nations exhaustively, because I'm only one researcher, but I did spend time in British Columbia, in Ontario, uh, California, New York, a lot of time in Ohio and Colorado because I thought they would be very different from each other. So um, I tried to get as much diversity as I could. I tried to get age diversity, which I did, gender, racial, ethnic, and sexual diversity, which I achieved to a degree. Because um, the, the cutting edge of this is, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever you want to think, is, is white, actually, Caucasian. That is the cutting edge of this. But statistics show that it is not staying there. It is spreading out. Hispanics, especially Asians, are very large in the spiritual but not religious culture. And so it is really, uh, it's cross-cultural. And then um, I, I was able to get, it's not just highly educated or uneducated people. I had people from all walks of life, occupations, and educational levels. And then all different income levels. 
And I'd like to say that if I sat my uh, rural Ohio interviewee, my out-of-work factory rural Ohio interviewee down next to my yoga, well-fed, well-dressed, nicely compensated yoga instructor from Boulder, Colorado, and sat them down together. Now, in some ways, they'd be very diverse. But on the belief level, they'd agree on tons and tons of things. It was amazing. So my research actually disproves a lot of common assumptions, a lot of stereotypes we make about spiritual but not religious people. They didn't hold true in my research. I didn't hear a lot of religious distress. You know what that means? That means how religion hurt them. I I didn't hear much of that. Sexual abuse, all that, didn't get much of that. And really, if they wanted to complain, I was the one to do it because I'm pretty over-identified with organized religion, right? I mean, my parents for sure felt I overcompensated, for sure. So I would have been the one, if it were me and I were them, I would dump on me, I would dump on that person. That would be great, like, oh good, nobody make her feel bad, okay. But I didn't hear a lot of that. Instead, I heard a lot of gratitude and happiness that I was listening for two hours to them. Um, I didn't get a lot of complaints about the church's community. They didn't say it's the most segregated hour. They didn't say nobody's friendly to me. They didn't say that. In fact, what do you think, what sacrament do you think they missed the most for those who had once been part of organized religion? What sacrament do you think they they missed the most? Want to guess, anybody? No, infant baptism, no. What, communion, no. Okay, the potluck. (laughs) They said, I really liked... That was nice. They made good food, and they were friendly, and it was so nice to be part of a group. A lot of people had uh, sad feelings about not being involved in religion anymore. It wasn't just rich people or women or whites, and really, if it just was, you still needed to, you'd still need to study it, because that would be very important in itself, but it wasn't just that. Um, it wasn't narcissistic, commitment-phobic people. We might put them down and say that, but that's a defense mechanism. That's not, that was not really true about them. I mean, they weren't any more narcissistic than anybody in this room. And frankly, our culture raises us to be narcissistic, so, you know, we come by it, honestly, I guess. Um, They were not nihilistic. They were not anarchists. They were not loners. They were everyday normal people. They paid their taxes. They took care of their families. They had friends. They were everyday people. They were not uncritical of the exotic and the non-Western. They weren't just, yes, let me get adopted by a a First Nations elder and I'll be a, you know, First Nations person now. They they thought it over, well, I don't know if that's really the right way to go, or whatever spiritual alternative they were considering. They weren't just wannabes, you know what wannabes are? They weren't just wannabes. They were not against belief, in fact, they were thrilled to have someone finally to tell their beliefs to. They said, no one's ever asked me this. This is really great. Now I get to to say what I think. And they weren't shallow. They had thought deeply about these questions. So the stereotypes that we maybe have thrown around did not hold true. Instead, what I found is that most of them were looking for a sense of fullness. They were searching for a way to feel fulfilled. That's part of the morality of self-fulfillment. And it's not a bad or a good thing on its own, but it's a search that I guess they feel religion is not helping them with. However, they, they, they have a sense that there's something more. And sometimes they have a sense that some of the people involved in religion have found that something more. 
So as this one author says, James K.A. Smith, he says, even the secularist is pressed by a sense of something more, some fullness that wells up within or presses down upon the managed, imminent frame we've constructed in modernity. He's sort of spinning off of Charles Taylor's An Imminent Age, and Charles Taylor, it's, I re highly recommend the book, but I don't know if you're gonna take the time because it's about 950 pages. So James K.A. Smith is the Cliff's Notes to Charles Taylor. Anyway, Charles Taylor says we live in a managed, imminent frame where transcendence is not, is not believable. Something that breaks in from outside of our managed world is not believable. So those are the spiritual but not religious people. Now we need to, if we want to know them, love them, serve them, work with them, we need to understand them. We need to understand their attitudes, and we need to understand their theology, and they do have theology. So what we need to know is the search is no longer where do I belong. The search is now who am I? So it's actually deeper than it used to be. People used to be searching for a spiritual home. Now they're just searching for their spiritual self. That's, that's quite a shift. And it's harder. So the quest is for meaning. And rather than looking outside yourself for meaning, now the self becomes the arbiter of that. And for many people, detraditioning, in other words, walking away from tradition, seems to be the best way to do these things. So the, cha the change overall is in the locus of authority. Do you know what I mean by the locus of authority? Where do, you, where do you go for truth? Where do you go for authority? Do you go out there? Do you go to your religion, to God, to the military, whatever organization you're involved in, your job? Or do you just look inside? And people now have shifted from out there to in here. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's not the most safe place to go, but I don't have time to get into that. There are some downsides to this whole movement, but I don't have time to, to spin that out too much right now. And yet, and yet, in spite of everything I've said, most of the SBNRs I met were haunted by the echoes of religion, and they often longed for it. So K, James K.A. Smith again says, that SBNRs, they live in the twilight of both gods and idols, but their ghosts of the gods and idols refuse to depart. And every once in a while, they might be surprised to find themselves tempted by belief, by intimations of transcendence. Which, you, I think, John, you asked me how come people, or someone asked me how come people are converting, how come young people are becoming Christian? That's why, because there's this, sense that I'm not getting it just by trying to fulfill myself and just look inside. That's not going to take me where I really need to go. I need to open myself up to, the big, to something bigger. And yet people don't want to admit that often because we have an inbuilt blinder on now about organized religion. Most people will look anywhere but not organized religion. Unless they can change and get a more open mind about it. Their attitudes are super important. Many people view, uh, view, view religious, political, financial institutions, in other words, we're very suspicious of, of institutions in general. They feel they're tainted by wrong values and self-interest. So of course they have trouble finding ones that mesh with their spiritual beliefs because they're suspicious of them. And so righteousness, being a good person, means relig resisting religious enclosure, resisting being labeled and supporting progressive values. So issues become the, the touchstone rather than institutions or tradition. And what else do we know about them? They're not just secularists. They're not like uh, 
what do we used to say? What did evangelicals used to say? Godless, uh, godless secular humanism. You know, that's not that's a stereotype. They're, that's not really true. Um, they have shared ethical values. The SBNRs I met would agree on a lot of things, like let's wor fix global warming. You know, all these various ethical issues. There's a lot of agreement, um, and they're motivated by issues rather than by institutions, as I said. So, in a nutshell, why do they rip apart spirituality and religion? I feel that it's a rhetoric, it's a boundary-setting activity, it's not a true dichotomy, it's a false dichotomy. But what they say is religion is institutional, it's dogmatic, it's exterior, it's unessential, but spirituality is personal, it's private, it's open, it's individualistic, and it's about your core. So that's the way this is ripped apart. But really, what did we used to call spirituality back in the day, do you know? In the church, what did they call it? What's called spirituality now? What did they call it? Other than religion. What, what, what did Wesley, when Wesley said I have a, he had a heart strangely warmed, what did we call that? Anybody remember? Nobody, none of you were there. I wasn't there either. But they called it piety. And so that, that concept existed before, but it was in, in the middle of religion, whatever religion, where it was enmeshed in it rather than ripped out of it. That's a new thing. That's unusual. So, in spite of all this, I always like to say, and yet, because it is an and yet thing, and yet. SBNRs are often morally lonely. A lot of my interviewees said they refused to use the word right and wrong, good or bad. They wouldn't use it, because they said, how do I know? How can I decide what's right or wrong for you? That's why everyone loved it when Pope Francis said about uh, homosexuals, who am I to judge? And I was like, yes, Francis, you're right. Cool, you're a cool guy. But what the, re the, the dark side of that is that many people are morally lonely, truly do not know how to decide what's right or wrong other than feelings, and feelings are not reliable. But that's me as a theologian coming out. That's for another time. So uh, many people, I mean all of us really, not just SBNRs, have learned to be cynical. We may not trust or commit easily. SBNRs, I find, don't generally, especially institutions. And all of us actually, but especially SBNR, see everything therapeutically. In other words, it's all about healing, healing the self, healing the body, healing the soul, being holistic. That's the core goal for many people. And of course, they are, as I am, turned off by the liberal versus conservative battle, whether that's in politics or in religion. They're tired of it, and probably a lot of people here are tired of it. So in the end, how are they? Well, they want to keep their options open, so there's less joining, less affiliating, less committing, more experimentation, more exploration, more choices. And that's the world we live in now. Spirituality and religion has become a commodity. It's for sale, and we shop. We shop for it. That's not how it used to be. I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but it is hard to function as a religious institution if that's the value because you end up being forced to be, to be a marketer, an entrepreneur. I mean, it makes it harder to survive. And yet, my interviewees also believe in the sacred. Just remember the end, and yet, because the end yet is the, the other side of the surface of SBNRs. Because the w reason people spoke to me is because they had, uh, uh, they had a, a, a desire to, to say, and yet, there's something else, there's something else, and they wanted to talk about that. So they, my interviewers believe in the sacred, they do. They long for authentic, meaningful relationships. 
They do care about community and civic life. They're not just about themselves. They value inclusivity, which you could guess. They seek genuine experience. We're a highly stim we're a high stimulation, experiential culture, but my interviewees wanted explanations too. They didn't just want a, f a great feeling, and then they go home. And in spite of all that, which we think, oh, religion, you know, could give you that, they just don't understand how it would work. So I'm spiritual but not religious now has become, it seems to everyone to be more reasonable, more praiseworthy, more courageous, more necessary, more acceptable. If you, do you, does anyone here ever go on Match.com to get dates? Uh, you're not admitting it. I know you've done it. All right, I get that. Okay, so if you go on Match.com, you, you know you have to give your profile, right? And then there's all these choices. Where do you live? How far away can this person be? And all that. And then they ask you some of your more personal questions, like what do you consider yourself religiously or spiritually? Uh, Catholic, Protestant, you know, they'll break it down. And then there's atheists, and there'd be spiritual but not religious. So which of those options do you think would get you the most dates? I have tested this. This is true. Which one would get you the most dates? Spiritual but not religious, that's the one. Now, next time you go on Match.com, fix your profile and put that in there instead, okay? And it's going to work for you. And you can think about why that, why that would work. Okay, so what about belief? They have beliefs. Yes, they do. Um, but the key is, most important, is what they don't believe. Because what we're having now is a change in believability structures. What can I believe and what seems silly or crazy to believe? or unbelievable. So here's what they don't believe. And probably a lot of people in the church don't believe in these things either. As a theologian, I think there's a downside to rejecting all that, but I'm just reporting what I found. Exclusivism, you know what that is? That's my way or the highway theology. You know, you're either, you go my way or you don't go anywhere, you go to hell, right? Uh, absolute truth, I just had a long internet dialogue with a, one of my neighbors. He said, please, give me your definition of truth. Give me, because he wanted to kind of, I think, trap me into saying there's absolute truth. And of course, he, being a millennial, doesn't believe in it. Nobody, none of my interviews believed in it. Person, a personal, self-conscious, intentional, involved God. People thought it was immature to think of God as that kind of person or that kind of spirit. Sin, bad word. Nobody liked that word. It's funny that they like dysfunction and addiction and sick. That was okay, but sin was not okay. Uh, heaven and especially hell, highly rejected. And then finally, that community was necessary for spiritual growth. Most of my interviewees didn't think it was necessary. It was a nice frill, but not essential for your spiritual growth. The best spiritual growth would happen when you were working on it, working on yourself. That doesn't mean they don't believe anything. Of course, they did believe many things. And I interviewed them about these four topics. Transcendence and eminence, human nature, community, and life after death. I, I did this because these are the big questions that every human being needs to ask. Is there anything greater than myself? What does it mean to be human? Like, am I, fully, am I just determined or am I completely free? Um, do you need community to grow or not? And then what happens after you die? Those are big questions that every human being needs to ask. So here's some, I, my, I have a chapter per topic, so that I can't give you everything, it, but it is in the book. But anyway, what I found was impersonal divine energy was as good as it got for transcendence and eminence. Some people said there's, you know, a power greater than, than themselves. 
most people said that, but it was usually what I call horizontal transcendence as opposed to vertical transcendence. Now, these are spatial metaphors that are not really true, but they're graphic, and that means I connect with the wider human community, or I connect with the universe, or I connect with uh, the world. Vertical, vertical would be I connect with something greater than myself that's not me, and that's not the universe, but it's, it, it can break in, so to speak, to my world. They didn't like that one. Human nature, where they, they uh, what do you think the first thing that my interviewees said, and I'm talking 100% of my interviews, what's the first thing they said when I said, what does it mean to be human? Let's take a guess. What? Consciousness, no, they didn't say that, but that would be true, but that's not what they said. They all said the same thing. It was so striking. What do you think they said? Excellent, you get an A. Excellent, I don't have any free candy to throw you, but that's what I do sometimes. Yes, they said everyone is born good. Now, what were they, under the surface, protesting? Original sin, right? They all said that. And then, are you free? Are you determined? Well, usually they felt everyone was completely free, except when they had a bad upbringing, and then they were trapped in, you know, bad behavior, and they couldn't get out of it. So it was a little bit deterministic. Um, community versus freedom. They liked the idea of community. They thought it was a nice thing, but weren't super interested in connecting for a variety of reasons. I would say, what's your ideal spiritual community? Um, just get, give me an image. Like, tell me what it would look like. And they'd say, okay. Um, Everybody there would be, um, would, would be open to everybody else's spirituality. They would be happy for whatever you believed, and they would be open to whatever you believed. And they would do nice social things together, like have uh, like bonfires and you know, potlucks and stuff. That would be the ideal community. And I said, that sounds good. Um, so have you found anything like that? No, no. Have you looked? Yeah, kind of. So why didn't you find it? Well, because I want to find a place where everybody thinks like I do so they couldn't find it. I thought that was really interesting. And then finally, life after death. Mostly it was about either the recycling theory, which is you go into the ground and then grass comes up, or it was um, reincarnation, a lot of reincarnation. But not, but American reincarnation, not Eastern, not Hindu and Buddhist reincarnation, because for them, you can go backwards. You don't just go forwards, you know, you could get, come back worse. For my interviewees, very American. I mean, maybe very Canadian, but certainly for my American interviewees, definitely only onward and upward. So what we have is an emerging meta-narrative of options. And I think meta-narrative is a strong word, meaning, meaning like Peter Berger's sacred canopy. Um, it's, there's a lot of agreement here for, for this population. We are all one, we are all on our own. We are on a par with nature, but each person is divine. And you might say, eh, aren't these self-contradictory? Well, kind of, yeah, there's some of that in there. Um, there's no personal God, and a universal energy source may exist, but it's not conscious, it's impersonal, it doesn't communicate, and it's indifferent to us. Many people had trouble getting over the idea of God that they had uh, found in religion, if they had religion, and, but they felt guilty about it, that they still wanted a higher power that cared about them and that communicated and guided them. So sometimes they would substitute the universe and use it in the same way, but they still believed that it was this too. So that's kind of, often I'd say, well, I don't get how that goes with that. And that's in the book anyway. So <clears throat> your mo 
more, med more options, your most important task is to find your true self. Tradition stifles the individual. Personal growth takes precedence over community. And after death, we either get endless second chances or we blend in with the universal energy. That is an emerging meta-narrative. We used to have a sacred canopy under which each culture sheltered, and it was a dominant religious ethos that each culture sheltered under, and there was a lot of agreement. Well, that sacred canopy, that umbrella, is completely in shredded. The spines are there, a couple spines are there, but the fabric is all shredded. But this is what's coming uh, to replace it in some way, at least for that population. This is big. It's really, really big. As one person says, it might be the most dramatic religious, sorry, intellectual and social change, sorry about that, since Christendom took root in Europe. That is big. I don't think you can get a whole lot bigger than that. So, okay, are you depressed now? If you're in a church, are you super depressed? Don't be depressed. It's that, this, is that, this spiritual ferment is actually good news. Because many of the people I spoke to are very open to the sacred. They're very grateful to be heard, and we're not listening well enough. They're excited to explore belief. They're open to theological... Sorry. Sorry about that. They're open to theological discussion, and they're thinking and questing people. They just want the tools to do this with some sophistication, and they don't know that these tools exist some. Often they don't know. Sorry about that. Sorry. Okay. Good. Canadians say sorry. They say sorry. I know. Oh. Did you see the movie Being Canadian? Nobody here saw that movie. It's so good. We saw it at the Traverse City Film Festival. Everyone needs to go and see this movie Being Canadian. I was in a, uh, we were in a liquor store buying wine for our friends. I, we have our friends here, Bryn and Susan, Eaton Davies, and um, I, asked the, I asked the saleswoman if I could use the bathroom, and she goes, well, we don't really have a bathroom, but I, I'll take you back there. So she took me back through the stock room, and um, this is about b being Canadian. She took me back there, and she said, well, I'll have to wait for you, and I thought, oh, yeah, because I probably think, you know, I might steal something on the way out. So after I got out, I said, thank you so much. I'm sorry to trouble you. She goes, thank you, thank you, thank you. So she was, like, thanking me for going to the bathroom. I thought that was great. <laughs> I love Canada. You're a lot nicer than we are, totally. So see that movie, you'll love it. Uh, so this is a culture-wide spiritual revolution. More people are searching spiritually than in previous generations. We need to celebrate that. More of them are determined, dedicated, and willing. They spend money, they take time, they really care, they really, really work at it. Uh, spiritual seeking is on the rise across generations. This is not just happening in one generation or another. It's everyone, everywhere I went. Many are searching for meaningful spiritual practices, which you need to take seriously, especially if you're in the church. Many are searching for a vital spiritual community. They are. You have to be, you know, look inside here if you're religious to what you're, what you're showing. And, and what's actually good news is that many of my younger interviewees had absolutely no exposure, almost no exposure to religion. So less religious upbringing equals less religious distress. So there's a new openness to religion. I mean, if, if, nobody ever if nobody darkened the door of a church and you think the church hurt them, well, the church couldn't, didn't have the opportunity to hurt them, so okay, <laughs> maybe that's good. And that was my story, actually. 
No, I never experienced religious distress because I just had a take what you like and leave the rest Catholicism when I was a Catholic. Now, ever since I started working for organized religion, of course I had the usual run-of-the-mill views of things, bad things that people do. But, you know, it's everywhere anyway. It's, a, it's human nature. That's why I became a theologian. So, in the end, this is a wake-up call to North American religion. And that's good. The espionars I met want an experience of God. They are more interested in issues than institutions, I said. But the issues they're interested in are ones that concern us, too. And, and the current critical ethical and social problems we have, like uh, lack of diversity, prejudice, climate change, right? Th this requires a society-wide commitment to work, f to work against. So we have to f engage SBNRs as allies, not see them as something else outside of us. And, and when, as you do this, just remember one thing. True vitality attracts. So whether, if you're religious, just remember that the SBNR movement is a new creative challenge for organized religion. But it's also a creative challenge for society, even if you're not religious, because we are going to have to reinvent a lot of the ways we provide social services, especially in the U.S., where we have less uh, you know, socialistic kinds of uh, safeguards in place. But for all of us, religion has provided a lot of social and spiritual capital if it moves away, we are all going to have to work together to find new ways to replace that. So I, I do have a website, and if you want more information, you can go there or you can purchase the books. And um, since I'm from New Jersey, I'm giving you a sale. So like, if you get them both, it's like less money, but you know, that's, I'm from New Jersey, we do that. Okay, so anyway, here's my website. Please uh, consult it. And um, we're going to open this up now for an interview and for questions. And I thank you very, very much for paying attention. And uh, hopefully you'll, you've got your questions ready. Thank you. Um, I'd like to suggest, I do have my questions. Thank you. That was awesome. And totally reaffirmed my belief in the potluck, which I love. Exactly. Um, I want to uh, suggest, our initial plan was I was going to ask Linda my questions and then open it up. I'm going to make it a little more fluid, I think, Steve, if that's okay with you. So I will start us off. But uh, if you have a question, please just raise your hand and Steve will come to you with a mic so we can all hear. Um, I want to pick up on one of the final things you said that struck me in the book um, and goes along with other statistics I've read recently that religious people, and we probably love this, uh, statistically are a little more generous with their time and money. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can go a little bit further in what we need to be looking for in society if the sort of SBNR identity continues to rise at the same time as church attendance mm -hmm. dwindles. Well, to be perfectly honest, that actually worries me more than almost anything. Because as I said, religion has provided many, many positive benefits. As much as we want to say, what about the Inquisition? What about this and that? You could find more killing in, in atheistic revolutions too, so I don't really you know, think that religion is responsible for all the violence in the world, because you think about the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the French Revolution, Cuban Revolution, lots of killing there too. So that, you know, I, but, but, on the, but anything, that's, anything that can produce great evil 
can also produce great good, or vice versa. Anything that can produce great good can also produce great evil. So religion can produce great good, and it has. And what will our culture do without that producer of social, spiritual, and personal capital? Uh, statistics show that people that are members of religious communities vote more, donate more, show up more, etc. And so without that, uh, yeah, I want to know what are we going to do? That's my, I actually worry about that. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking too about um, children, like thinking about my uh, three kids who, you know, can be little demons <laughs> when they were younger, but I knew that they were in Sunday school learning, you know, the golden rule and mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments and so on, and that we were actively uh, teaching them. And I'm not assuming that SBNRs do not teach their children they do. moral guidelines. Yeah, they do. But is there, what would be a difference, do you think, in that sort of education of kids? Well, the, the um, statistics on youth show that there's less addiction less, you know, crime and all that for, yeah. for people that, children that are members of religious communities. Now, obviously, they still get in trouble, but it seems to be less than um, those who are in religious communities, so that worries me. But you can't really reduce religion to morality, mm -hmm. because the essence of religion isn't moralism. People say, I can be good without God. Yes, you can. That is true. But that's not the, the core of religion is not morality. Morality is an, is a, is an after effect. It's a, it's a fruit. It's the, what happens when you reorient. Religion is really about orientation. Are you oriented to, your, to God or are you oriented to self? Um, Luther said that, that uh, our chief problem is curvatus in se ipsum. That means being curved in upon yourself. And that, is, that, that does describe our culture. Everyone is curved in upon themselves. And when you reorient your life, that's why in Alcoholics Anonymous they say you need to recognize there's a power greater than yourself. Many of my interviewees who are SBNRs actually became, they had been hostile to religion, but after they were at Alcoholics Anonymous, they actually became more spiritual because they found a power greater than themselves. So religion is really more about orientation than about being good behavior. But when you're reoriented, when you're properly oriented, your behavior generally gets better too. Let me ask you one more question around the religious education of children, because one of your subjects talked about his Sunday school experience, uh, and he said, well, something like the lady, I learned how to color, the lady, yeah. <laughs> I know. and I did what the lady told me to do in my right. pamphlet. Uh, and as a Sunday school teacher, I was kind of like, oh boy, what yeah. are we doing wrong? Right, well, well some, when we're so anxious, I think, in the church to get people to fill these volunteer slots that I mean, <laughs> we, we don't even make sure that they actually know what they're talking about. And we're so grateful, and, and we should be grateful. We're grateful for their service, we're grateful for their love and their care. But eh, maybe they need a little more training than just, you know, volunteering and just showing up tomorrow in the classroom. Well, I remember one, one of my interviews, you probably, you already read this, he said, I don't think it was the same one, but he said, um, I went to Sunday school, and they always said the lady, you know. Yes. I went to Sunday school, and I told the lady that my cat had died. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and he said, I was so sad, and, I, and the, this boy said, or he was a man now, and he said, um, is my cat in heaven? And she goes, oh, how silly, animals don't go to heaven. That was the end of religion for him. But that, he's not, she wasn't even right. I mean, there's something in, in a Christianity called apocatastasis, which is a great word. I want you all to learn it. Apocatastasis. It means the reuniting of everything. And so why would God just say, oh, the humans, are, they're cool. Forget the trees. Forget the earth. Forget the animals. No. Everything is restored. Mm -hmm. So why, 
but she didn't know that. Yeah. And so this poor guy, that was it. That was it for him. Do we have questions in the? Hi. Hi. Um, thanks a lot for your talk. Um, so if we assume that, um, that, w that turning towards God is, a, you know, is the good thing and turning away from ourselves, um, then what I hear in, uh, in, in your talk is there, there's an, an assumption that being open to the sacred is kind of like the, one of the big steps to, towards becoming open to God. Right. And yet probably um, maybe an, an opposition to that would be I've been reading a lot of Alistair McIntyre and kind of recognizing that all, all, all reasoning happens within tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so any, any reasoning that's happening outside of tradition um, is, well, you would say, see as uh, almost dangerous, right? And, um, and, and if we see that as kind of a trajectory from saying, well, we had tradition, mm -hmm. and then now we're moving away from tradition, then kind of what is the next step that we're, we're, we're getting to? that kind of make sense? I don't think, yeah, I don't think society can handle uh, lack of structure and disorder, but the problem is when it, it starts to fall apart, usually something more repressive comes in to restore order because governments are responsible for the safety of their people and they're going to find a way to do it one way or another. And uh, so, well, I think he's right that, tr that, that good reasoning happens within tradition, and I hear tradition in my interviewees, but it's more of a uh, syncretistic or hybridity kind of tradition where it's a little from here and a little from there and that can work for a while but uh, studies also show that that, that that doesn't get passed on to the next generation. So while one generation may live on, on the dregs or the, the fumes of the, of the tradition the next generation their, their children really don't get much at all and so actually but this, while that sounds really depressing the story of Cuba is really exciting we, my husband is Cuban, actually, and we, go, we take students to Cuba. And Cuba had this very ex important experience. They tried to, well, you know about Fidel and the revolution, and, you know, in the 50s and all that. And so if, since Fidel Im immediately decided he would be, he was a socialist, then he decided communist. Of course, communist is atheistic, so that's it. So they made religion seem stupid and weak, and, you know, they, they just made it um, not only unpopular, but unsafe and uneconomic to be religious. So if you were, if you professed any kind of belief, you never got a job. The government had all the jobs. You didn't, never, you couldn't join the Communist Party. You couldn't rise in your career. You couldn't do anything. And so of course, people didn't, you know, they abandoned religion. It was the only safe thing to do. And so uh, at least one or two generations grew up with no religion whatsoever, zero, nothing, not even a memory. And, uh, and that plus they were taught in school that it was not cool. Um, but, what, but when the Soviet Union stopped propping up Cuba for various economic reasons, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, suddenly people started casting around for something to believe in. And believe it or not, it was the young adults, especially the guys, who turned back to religion. And it's some, you think, how did they, where did they get it? There were a few people, ministers and churches and Bibles, a little bit here and there, and they turned, and it's the most vibrant, most vibrant religious community, and it's ecumenical, There's, it's across the board, it's all different groups, but it's the most vibrant thing we had ever seen in our lives. The, you could feel the spirit, it was palpable, it was amazing. So that gave us a lot of hope, my students and my husband and I gave us a lot of hope. So we think, well, we're going to go down the tubes, but I don't think we will. That is encouraging to hear. Right in the middle there? Okay. 
Um, w w one of the things that caught my attention when you were speaking was the uh, reference to piety. And I was wondering if in your uh, interviews with the SPNRs, if you found people that were actually seeking that piety and not finding it in institutional religion and perhaps finding it in their own way through other traditions or however, mm -hmm. and actually perhaps even missionally looking for ways that they could convert institutional religion into a, a depth that maybe matched their own level of spirituality and understanding in that sense. And uh, perhaps going back pre-Constantine before religion bled into yeah, yeah, larger yeah. society and sure. so on and so forth. Because mm -hmm. my experience has been that there are a lot of people out there who in, in many respects one could argue are very advanced spiritually compared to your average parishioner who brings their kids to Sunday school, shows up for sermons and so on, but, but isn't really that engaged in spiritual practice or in contemplation or reflection on many of the deeper spiritual issues. Studies don't actually prove that out, but I know we like to say that. Uh, like I have another slideshow where I say what the negative assumptions are about SBNRs and other positive assumptions, and that would be one of the positive assumptions that I don't, I mean, I'm not saying they're not spiritual, I'm just saying I don't think that it works that way. Because um, studies don't show that. The, in fact, the, Pew, the, the most recent Pew report was looking at um, spiritual practices, and they see an increase in the spiritual practices of people involved in organized religions, and they see a decrease in the spiritual practices of those who have left or never went to uh, religious institutions or who claim to be spiritual but not religious. So, and they looked at prayer, meditation, you know, the usual things, indicators. And um, so we actually maybe are seeing a revival of spiritual practices in the church, not everywhere, but a lot of places. And I think that it's going to be hard to sustain a spiritual commitment on your own. And that's what they're seeing, that it's hard, that it, that it kind of grows, but now it's subsiding because it's really hard to do this as the Lone Ranger. You do need, you need a community. So I don't want to, you know, go be uh, negative to what you're saying, but I just read the Pew report and it, it doesn't um, uphold that. But I think people in the church like to say that because it makes them feel more guilty, and <laughs> we love that. Um, let me no offense. follow up on that a bit. It might, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that because going to church is not the thing to do anymore necessarily, um, and there's not the societal pressure to go. In fact, there may even no, be right. pressure to not go. That's right, yeah. That the people who go regularly uh, tend to be pretty serious about their faith. Is yeah, that a safe that's assumption? Yes, it is, and a study showed that. Yeah. Okay. In the book, uh, you tell a little story about uh, a young woman who, um, Lizette, talks about a feeling that she's gotten at churches that is like this. This is what we believe, and we would, we would like you to believe it too. And if you don't, it's okay. You will. Yeah. And that she was sort of horrified by that. Yeah, she was. When I r read that, though, I thought, I've totally thought that. Mm -hmm. I may not have yeah, said that, but right. I've definitely thought that. Yeah. Is, is that sort of inherently wrong? Um, you know, I was a good example of, of not of, of like her, because when I got to Labrie, and, and th they were starting to say things that made sense. And I, even after I decided that I, I accepted Jesus Christ, I didn't tell anybody. Because I didn't want them to think that they were right, that I would be another jewel in their crown, that I'd be another notch in their belt. I didn't want to give them the satisfaction because I didn't like that attitude. Okay. 
So I agree with her, actually. Yeah. No, I think you need to be open and compassionate, and who knows where God's leading people. So I don't think we need to assume it's, you know, they're going to come to our way of thinking eventually. There's another example in the book, a young woman who says she was weirded out by her neighbor inviting her to church. And I think this was someone who didn't have any religious background, I remember. And so how do we invite an SBNR in a way that doesn't weird them out uh, sort of to try our community? I don't think we uh, start by inviting them to worship services because I really don't think that's going to work and they're not going to understand it. It's going to feel strange and alien. I think you need to start by having the church be out in the community instead of expecting the community to come into the church. Okay. So when the church is out in the community doing important things that SBNRs agree with, you're fighting, you're, you're recycling, you're, fight, you're working for climate change, you're, uh, you know, yeah. loving gays and lesbians. I don't know where you fit on, fit on that, but, you know, that's very dramatic and very good. So when they see that, then they, oh, wow, okay. And that's what I mean, issues versus institutions. And then you may then find ways to collaborate, and they may eventually want to know why you're like that. If you're religious, that doesn't seem to work with the stereotypes, and they might get curious. So okay. I think we need to reverse our ways. They're not, don't expect SBNRs to show up at the door of the church. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen, very rarely anyway. Thank you for your work. Um, did, you, did your research uh, discover any trends that SBNRs have? sacred literature, regardless of which world religion mm -hmm. that they might uh, be associated with or were. And secondly, uh, are any of the present world religions producing more SBNRs than others? Like, are a lot of them coming out of Christianity and coming into this category, or out of Judaism, or Hinduism, or... Mm. Uh, it's not so much of an exodus anymore. It's mostly people being raised without religion that just continue along that path because that's what they, you know, have learned at home. So uh, maybe at one time people left conservative Christianity to, and went to more liberal Christianity, and then, then then after that maybe they went to Unitarian Universalism, you know, and then maybe eventually they didn't do anything. But that trajectory isn't so much anymore. But as far as it seems like Judaism is producing the most SBNRs and atheists. And that makes me sad because of my Jewish heritage. But, but when pe I think it has a natural reason. When, when um, Jews look at the Holocaust, they think, well, if that's God, then forget about it. You know? So uh, also Asia, there's a, a more, there are more Asians becoming SBNR. So I don't know what that says about Asian religion because you think that a lot of the Caucasian people are actually drawn to, to Eastern religion, so how does that work? I don't really know how this is all working, but I don't think it's, a, it's an exodus anymore. It's more like that's just the, it's the air you breathe, it's the cool thing, it's what all the cool kids are doing. Hi, uh, thank you very much for your work. Um, your, your comments about um, the church out in the community being uh, impressive and that which is compelling, are, are helpful, but what if what if you're in an elevator with somebody, and you have that two or <laughs> three or four yeah, minutes? How what, what are the best? Could you suggest some tips, or how to make the least amount of damage? Well, I started my interview is <clears throat> I had sort of a it's called a semi-structured open-ended interview. I don't know if there's any sociologists here. 
Anybody, any sociologist? I use semi-structured open-ended interview techniques. And um, I, I started by saying, um, of course, first I got the demographic information, which you're not going to do in the elevator, but you know, you're, and that was confidential. Everybody was anonymous anyway. I was required by law to keep them anonymous by my human subjects review committee at school. But at any rate, my first question was, how was spirituality expressed in the environment you grew up in? And um, many of my younger interviewees said two words. It wasn't. So that's a kind of a gentle, generic way to open the conversation. There are many ways to, to open the conversations. I, I try to do it all the time, not because I'm trying to be pushy, but because it's so, I really find it enjoyable and fun, and I love to talk to people about this. So I find it easy to start these conversations. I'm getting my hair cut. I'm having a conversation. And she's not, I don't think she's thinking, oh, this is some religious nut trying to convert me, because <laughs> all I'm trying to do really is understand about her. So um, to me, the opportunities are everywhere. I'm finding that a lot of people are professing to be Christian but not religious. Um, how does that relate oh. to SBNR, and how does that Good. sit in terms of um, Christian orthodoxy and orthopraxy? Good question. <coughs> yes, I, I hear that too. Some people say they're, they're, they're in the church and they say they're spiritual but not religious. When they say, well, you're sitting here in the pew, I don't get that. Or they say they're Christian but not religious. I think what they really are doing is buying into the SBNR ethos. They may still have at their core a belief in Jesus and, and think of themselves as a Christian, but they have, our culture is it's just everywhere, and so it's not cool to, to want to be part of a church or any kind of, or, or identify with any kind of organized group. So Christianity seems about as generic as you can get before you just say you're spiritual. And, um, and, and it's also maybe an implicit, they're trying to make an implicit judgment on the church and on religion by saying, well, they're just you know, old stick in the mud, set in their ways, dogmatic people, and I'm a real Christian. So there's always a little bit of, don't be offended, but there's always a little bit of self-righteousness in that. In the book, you mention um, the tendency or reality of some mainline denominations uh, kind of, for lack of a better term, watering down beliefs and that that may not actually be the most appealing thing to the SBNR. Right. And I found that quite intriguing. Right, and then also you asked, I, I, I didn't answer your question about sacred literature. I forgot to answer that one. Um, uh, the, 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 they, many people are uh, attracted to ancient tradition now. They're starting to be attracted to ancient tradition, which would include sacred literature, um, and, but, but often will be more open to ones from other traditions, traditions other than Christianity, because they're like, oh yeah, that's the Bible. Yeah, whatever. I already heard that, you know. So um, there's a sort of a trend. There's like two trends in in SBNRs who are s who are looking for some for something. I think one is they want to go to the most archaic, the most ancient, the most rooted th thing they can find. Like if you take a yoga class, and the, the teacher will often tell you this is an ancient practice. It predates Hinduism. It predates Buddhism. It predates religion in general. And people are drawn to that because it seems more authentic. And then the other half seemed to be, uh, let's, what's, let's new, be new, let's be experimental, let's completely de-tradition. And so you never know which population, you have to know which population you want to appeal to if you're going to try to appeal. Hi. Um, my question was, you mentioned that um, the SBNRs, they believe in the sacred and that each person is divine. And I was wondering, 
how do they define, like, what does sacred mean to them? Did you get a sense? Is it a common? I would ask, okay. yeah. And what's divine? Well, as far as sacred first, they would, um, they would have different definitions of what was sacred to them. Family, relationships, the earth. It was always an imminent sacredness rather than a transcendent sacredness, okay? So there was that. And then as far as divine, I had people say to me, often, I am God. Which if you're a, a traditional Christian, makes your hair stand on end. Or if you're Muslim, or if you're Jewish. <laughs> not a good, not cool. Um, but I heard a lot. I heard it a lot. Uh, so um, they meant that, the, that their inner, their most inner self was divine, was sacred, and so they would turn inward to, for truth, for knowledge, for authenticity, for all that. Thanks. But I hear that within the Christian tradition. I know, you know right? There's some of the divine in everyone. Christianity is deeply affected by the SBNR ethos. It is. Deeply. Oh, so I don't mean Christianity comes. as a heritage, uh, uh, but I mean Christianity as practiced in today's world. Is, has very mu many churches are bought into the SBNR ethos without realizing it. Many. Many people have. So that, you think that belief comes from? Well, you need to see, that's why everyone needs to study theology. Because right. you need to get this clear. Um, do I mean, and then there's, there's been debates, of course, in theology. The whole, is the Holy Spirit everywhere? Does everyone have the Holy Spirit within? Is it just those who were saved? Is it just those who know God? They only have the Holy Spirit. Is, what about prevenient grace? Does God come before us? In which case, there's grace everywhere, and we all can walk, kind of walk into it. Um, so these are all really wonderful, fabulous, interesting debates that we've had in theology for a long time. The problem is the church has lost, lost, lost touch with its heritage and its tradition and its intellectual resources, so it doesn't really know all this great stuff we ta we've talked about for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And so instead we just buy into the, you know, the trends. We do. We just do. We really do. <laughs> this is all very interesting um, and hits a lot of things that I've been wondering about and involved in, and you spoke about the sacred literature. I'm very much interested in the church music, the music that's used in the church, and um, I don't know whether you have anything about that in the book. I haven't seen the bit. book. A little bit. But um, I think we are trying to um, make the music more appealing to young people, not necessarily whether they identify as spiritual but not religious, but um, uh, could you make some comment on um, how, uh, how um, we can um, evolve our music to be more appealing to the younger generation without losing its uh, spiritual and religious Yeah, there's a lot, lot that could be said on that. One thing is that some of my SBNR interviewees who still went to church primarily went because of the music, hmm. which is very good. Because music has a way of kind of, I mean, it does, you, you, your brain's involved, but it also goes straight to your heart. And they felt it. And in fact, sometimes I had some, st I had some students at my school that were very, um, very, 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 very radical and liberal. And then I'd have some that were very, very conservative. But they all joined the gospel choir because there was something about that music that just turned them on. Even though theologically, they, if you really made them look at the theology, they wouldn't, but they felt it viscerally, and that was good. 
So that's that, what's one comment. The other one is just to change the music in the hopes that they'll come in the door isn't gonna work because most of us are not as sophisticated and as professional musically as you can just get by, you know, having an MP3 or going on the internet or turning on the radio or TV. So to try to compete with entertainment, I think is a mistake. So there's that. But then the third thing I would say about music is that it should be something that appeals to the emotions but not that just appeals to the emotion, because we're losing this really rich theology that a lot of hymns have, which I don't want to do. But if the tunes don't resonate with people, well, Luther just used bar songs. I mean, that, you know, he was, he was down with the people. So um, I think we should change our music, but it's more fine-tuning for people that are already there. It's not going to be necessarily evangelistic. But, but a lot of people like gospel choirs, even if they're not religious, and there must be something there you know, that really is compelling. So uh, I think we should take music very seriously. But not just expect those words are going to sink in because sometimes the tune just doesn't make it really attractive. <laughs> I'm not a musician, though. Um, so i just like to ask, it's a bit of a playful question, but I was intrigued by what you said about the receptiveness and the seeking going on right now, and I wanted to ask you what you thought, if Jesus were here now, do you think he would have changed his message, and if so, how? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I that's a great question. I haven't <laughs> really thought about that, but um, no, I don't think he'd change the essence of his message. It's a very simple message in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, God was, has been trying to get to you for a long time, guys. You obviously weren't getting it, so here I am. I'm here, like, okay, see me? Got it? Okay, see how I am? That's it. So a window, a, a unique window. And, you know, I mean, I, my Christology is very traditional, but um, a unique window into what God, who God really is, which is the one that loves you and is searching for you. I think that's the same message we need now. I don't think he changed his message. But I think he changed his clothes quite a bit. I don't think he'd be with the, <laughs> the white robe and everything. Might with, be with the beard, though, because that's kind of back in. Yes. And, um I think he'd be, he'd be at the bar, and he'd be, you know, at the yoga studio, probably taking some yoga, and he'd be everywhere, but I don't know. I don't, I don't really know any more than that. That's just a guess. I think we should start wrapping it up, shouldn't we? Sure. Um, I have two final questions, and you can answer them in, in one if you'd like. How did your faith or ideas about church change during the research, if it did? And also, what is the one thing you wish SBNRs knew about the church that you love and serve? Mm. Um, I gained, I already had a lot of respect for SBNRs, and given that I came out of that background myself and still know tons of people. Um, so I, I gained more appreciation for them, and I really loved being with them, and I really loved all the things we did together. And it was, a, it was just a fun project. I mean, I went hiking in the Rockies, and I went to sweat lodges and took yoga and meditation, and I really enjoyed it. It was great, and it made a lot of good friends. So that was great. But what I wish they would know about the church is that the church is a place where, where God and love can be found, and, uh, and I found a home in the church. And I, I, it kind of breaks my heart that people are searching without attaching to a larger group that could help them and walk with them on, their, on the spiritual journey. And um, that's what I wish I could say to, to everyone. And I, and I also wish they would take some classes in theology because, you know, it's good to learn how to think more deeply about the big questions. Absolutely. 
Oh, Linda, thank you so much. You're that welcome. was so enjoyable. And I really encourage you to hang around after for um, refreshments, and I'm sure we can talk to you there as well. And Linda's books are at the back, and I think John is going to close us off. Okay. I want to add my thanks to Karen's, uh, but also to thank Karen. Uh, doing these things is hard work. These people have been going for a long time, and they have just been so patient and so resilient and so wise. And especially Linda, thank thanks. you. And thank Karen you. also for your interviewing. Let's give them a big hand. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.